All right, so welcome everybody to the Black Experience podcast series brought to you by Ryerson Student Life and Campus Engagement. The Black Experience podcast is a three-part episode series that was created to hold space, sorry, hold space for Black students to deliberate over Black identity and the lived experience of Black identified individuals and communities. My name is Samuel. I go by the pronouns she and they, and my other co-host. And my name is Uba. Oh, and my name is Uba. I go by she and her. <laughs> and we're your hosts for this series. We have two guests today. Um, if you guys would like to introduce yourself, just go ahead and state your name and your pronouns. Um, my I guess name. We can start with Joy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm go sorry. Ahead. My name's Lydia. Uh, my pronouns are she/her. Hi guys. All right. Enjoy. That's clean. Hi, I'm Joy. My pronouns are also she. Awesome. Hey. Glad to have you so, guys with us. <laughs> Real Thanks glad to have you guys. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, so this is this is a podcast episode centered around allyship and I guess all of the subsections that involve what being an ally is and all the different like realities of that. So the first topic that we're gonna discuss is like let's define what we consider to be an ally. So what do you what do you think an ally is? Characteristics. So that I'll give that to anyone. Joy. Okay. <laughs> I would say someone who is a genuine supporter of something that they can't necessarily personally relate to, but they care about the situation and they use their privilege to, in a way that um, empowers people who are actually in the situation. Okay. And what about you, Lydia? I think an ally is someone who takes the time to educate themselves, right? Like in a sense of just like, I feel like a lot of people are like really open to listening and hearing from experiences, but people don't necessarily want to like do a lot of education. And then because that also comes with reflection. So I feel like people who take yeah. the time, especially um, in things that necessarily don't have to deal with them, right? Like situations that they don't face and are just like, I want to learn about this. I want to understand it. And then I want to acknowledge it. I, I think that's an ally. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think a lot so, of the conversations um, that we had before were like just the space of like Black Lives Matter was that people who want to be allies have to do the work themselves and educate themselves and not look towards their other Black peers or people that they know to do that work for them. Would you agree with that statement? Yes. Exactly. And also just because I find it, if it's taxing if you do it the other way around, right? Like on the person that has yeah, to educate you, right? Like that. that's so much on one human being. And it's like, where are we going to start from? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? And it's, I don't think it's up to us or anybody to always, um, uh, how, how do I say this? I feel, I don't think it's up to us to always unpack our trauma in front of people and then let them learn that way. I think that we have a lot of educational tools. There are books, there are podcasts, there are places you to learn, and it doesn't necessarily have to be me saying my story over and over and over again, because it's very taxing on people. Yeah, well said. Especially like in mainstream media platforms, I, I think that like stories are often shifted in a way to like 
oh, this is me telling my story to this specific audience, um, this audience that is like the dominant audience that we all know tell our stories to in, in mainstream media, but I feel like our audiences should be ourselves sometimes, you know, it should be just genuine to us. It shouldn't always have to be on trying to just like engage this other audience that doesn't look anything right. like me just for their purposes of education. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. So there's a lot of, it seems to be a lot of anti-blackness in a lot of um, other people of color communities. So how do you guys think that other people of color can better support black people. Lydia, if you feel comfortable hopping in, let me know. I think that allyship is something that everybody needs to be, right? So in the sense that like including black people, right, for other mm -hmm. communities that are in need of it, I think it's super important. Um, as we know, anti-blackness is everywhere. Can't escape it. Try, can't. And so I think, th oh, sorry, what? Uba, are you okay? I was just snapping. I was like, wow, oh. I was totally lost. My bad. I was it's agreeing okay. with you. I'm sorry. Okay. So yeah, I think we, I think we understand that. I think that um, the best way is honestly for education. And I think that if people understand that we are, in as cliche as this is, we're a lot more alike than we are different. And if we focus on that with, with education, it's very important that people understand how we became this way. I think that mm -hmm. will create such a bigger, strong, and such, like, such a stronger community so we can actually be effective and make change. Mm -hmm. I agree. Joy? I agree. That is perfectly said. <laughs> <laughs> That was for other people of color, right? Yeah. 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 I think, um, well, just to add, like, one thing on to what Lydia said would definitely be, like, it's not a competition as to, like, who is the most oppressed, you know? It's not, like, my struggles are more than yours and blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone experiences life differently. And so I think that it's really about just being sympathetic to people and not actually trying to like victimize your own trauma over someone else's or try to um, downplay other people's experiences. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing to add from that, um, I'd like to ask if companies or organizations or brands, how do you think that they could be the best types of allies? And what would you see from them that is more authentic? Like what would, what would be some of the things that you would like to see as like a black customer, employee, Etc. Um, not just talking about black issues in February. Woo! <laughs> I feel like the timeline's kind of dry <laughs> right now. I don't know if you all seen it. Went it. from black, 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 black to quiet. No, because especially this year, right? right? I, I think this year, a lot of companies were like, hap like you know, happy Black History Month. Beautiful. Yeah, same to you, queens. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot. I was on Etsy, random, and it was like, it had like a black creator pocket right and it was like these are all the black businesses that are on here here's where it is right okay yeah. i don't that that shouldn't just be a february thing right mm -hmm. that can stay on all year so i think that that's a yeah. huge thing i think that not just february and then if we if it's all year round if it's if you see it that it's way more authentic right it's a countdown and it makes everybody else uncomfortable because we know from the first to the 28th we'll see it and then deuces yeah 
You feel like you've been yeah. tokenized in a lot of ways, right? Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that the fact that we're Black 365 to 66 on some leap years, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not something that we can avoid. So um, the fact that some companies are, are the profit, not only are using it as a, like a token, but like are profiting yeah. off that token, like, you should, you should, I want more effort. I would like to see more. Give us more because 365 i'd like to be I'd, I'd like it to be more than 28 days you know or 29 on a leap year yeah absolutely i would even go as far to say like that i've noticed a difference from 2019 until now because of obvious historical moments that have happened with like george floyd and other folk, like names that you'd remember now everybody's meeting these quotas and it's like yeah. Where is why? Why all of a sudden people have been getting killed? Black right. Lives Matter started like what 2013? What happened? You know what I'm saying? It's like, like for yeah. me, it feels very disingenuous. It's almost like, oh my gosh, we have to have X amount of black people on this commercial, also, black people are going to be mad at us. You know, it's not, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't feel genuine. There's a vibe around it that's like, hmm. <laughs> like, you feel like you're you're trying to meet something instead of actually genuinely putting in that effort and getting to know like what do black people want to see like if i'm doing a a commercial and i'm featuring black people like what do do black people want to see dark-skinned black people in these commercials maybe right. are you asking them Maybe you should ask, maybe you should have some black people on your team they maybe. hire people um, <laughs> not just surface level um, yeah. not lower level positions we want to see them yeah. executive levels we need to all all levels because y'all not checking in with black people and y'all have these commercials that are tone deaf and yeah. wondering why is the black community mad and can we just talk about Who's like black? on set can we talk about on set like we need black people doing black people's hair on set and their makeup, makeup. on set yeah. too like yeah. <laughs> Who's that girl from? Um, do you guys watch uh, Sabrina on Netflix? Is, I know I who you're talking about. She plays. She plays. She Prudence. Hair. Yeah, Prudence. She did her hair for the entire first and second series seasons. Mm. What, what show? Currently, Sabrina. She like she did finger waves for her the whole first and second seasons. Mm. Wait, what show like, is that's this? That's unacceptable. I, I it's the, the chilling. It's Sabrina. the chilling adventure. I think that's what yeah. the full name is. But yeah. and it is and it wasn't just her. It was another. Oh, I'm. I feel really bad that I can't remember her name either. Uh, there was another black girl on the show, mm -hmm. and she was also part mm -hmm. of the main cast. And I think she, she she spoke out about it. And she said for the first season, for the first season, she did her own hair, and then had to talk to production and was like, "Hi, I get up an hour earlier." than all my other castmates to do my hair at home because I can't come to this set and get it ready. It needs to be rectified. And they did it, which is great because they listened to her. But it's it's weird that it had to be said because everybody else, you know, they can they show up to set and they understand that they're gonna get their hair done. And she was doing it by herself and no one, no one, no one thought to go, hey, oh, we should hire someone who could also do your hair. Let's include you and yeah. what everybody else is doing. 
or hire black like people because they could do everybody's hair high key. <laughs> really? They're the weak link. I talk about it. I truly think I I truly think that the versatility that is like being able to do black hair and then also being able to do other hair is like unmatched. And like if you know the whole spectrum, then you'll you'll be able to do everything. So why not hire these hairstylists to do the job that they can do like i mean they can do the black hair but they could also do you know other people's hair hair. that's crazy (laughs) that they go to school for this no because you go to you know people go to beauty school and it's not taught yeah that's that is a grave misstep because it's crazy Mm -hmm. to think i'm like no 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 go learn how to do box braids go it should be part of your class yeah but really and truly would you (laughs) trust somebody who's white to do your hair bro I would never. Don't come touch my hair, bro. Don't touch me. Stay away. You know what I'm saying? I'm just being honest. I've had time getting any stylist to touch my hair, but nah. Just let me see your Instagram. Let me let me see your Instagram, and then we can talk. Let me see your Instagram. Nah, I'd rather put that money into a black person's pocket, high key, and get my hair done from somebody that understands the significance of certain hairstyles that I would like, like braiding. Box braids. I do not want to get my hair box braided by a white person. I would. I would never, ever. That's true too. That, yeah, that's true. They think it's I just a agree. style. I think that that's the difference. Yeah. Is that like when, um, <laughs> when, when white people do, especially if white people are doing, um, mm-hmm. this also ties in with allyship because um, the proximity to blackness is something is revered, and. Um, People think that that proximity or, you know, having black friends or something like that is enough to be an ally, but like not actually doing the work. So you'll have like non-black people wearing box braids or getting cornrows or getting faux locks, not understanding what it means to have these styles or wear these styles as a black person. So whether that be you know, not being allowed to wear your hair the way it is because it's not professional or someone thinking that, you know, natural black hair, curly, kinky, coily black hair is just active. There's so much, so much weight that comes with the essence of like the styles that people I'm not sure that people who are non-black will ever be able to understand. So I think honestly, it would just be best <laughs> if black people did black hairstyles and then mm-hmm. people who were not black did non-black hairstyles. You know, just just make it easy, <laughs> make it simple for everybody. I do think though that like, it definitely, like, learning how to do black hair in beauty school should be incorporated. Like you should be able to choose mm-hmm. in beauty school list. Like I want to go this field or that field because it seems like black hair is something you learn in your, from your grandmother. And it's, it's, it, that's, that's really important too, but we can also bring it to levels of education as well. You know? Yeah. Right. I agree. So we're going to move to another topic. So let's speak about structural racism and the impact of that. So can you define what stru- structural or systemic racism is 
and the facets in which it's embedded in. So like the different areas that you could find systemic racism or structural racism. So Lydia, you could start. Uh, wealth disparity, employment, criminal justice, healthcare, education, every other institution is there. <laughs> I don't like it's 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 embedded in every single institution because you have to look at when these institutions were founded, right? If someone tells mm -hmm. you, we have been here since 19, 1980, we have been here since 18, uh, okay, so then we also know what that comes with, right? And I don't think, and I think that a lot of people are willing to, I feel like now people are willing to, like, you know, say these things, right? People are just like, I understand what right. systematic, systematic racism is here, I get it, I know, but people don't really always uh, know exactly how to dismantle it, which is 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 understandable because it is so huge and so big and it it's everything right so i think that we just need to restructure on everything i think everything needs mm -hmm. to be rethought of everything needs to be revised everything has to be looked at from an like from yeah. a direct lens you have to look at it through a critical lens you need to get sociologists you need to get thinkers you need to get those kind of people in these buildings to see your structure and then we can move forward until then, peace out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Get ass. Yeah. I think I think racism is so Period. embedded in different systems and structures that it just becomes an everyday normality, even down to like the family mm -hmm. structure too. Like colorism within the home, you know, this sibling being treated a bit better because they're a bit lighter, you know? Um and yeah, it's just, it's in the most everyday parts of life, even the most personal ones. Like when you go home, sometimes you can't even escape that. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we know it it's too. Crazy. And we know it too. Don't you guys find that? I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but when I was younger, I obviously like dealt with racism, but I didn't even understand what was happening, you know, because microaggressions. Now I have the mm -hmm. language to explain you know, the things that were happening to me, but I feel like, I feel like, no, I feel like I knew, I, I understood racism before I knew that word. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. I, I felt the looks, I, people were saying things to me and I didn't have, I couldn't exp right. academically express it, yep. but I'm like, yeah. no, 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 something's mm -hmm. wrong. I'm being treated very different than Hannah right now. And I don't understand not why. Hannah. Not Hannah. Oh gosh. Come on. Yeah. yeah you're being gaslit almost no. in all a lot of different ways. And you don't even understand that you're a being gaslit or B having like all these, I wouldn't even say microaggressions. I'll just say literal, just aggression. Ignorance or racism, aggressions, they're not micro, they're kind of substantial because you'd be remembering, yep. you're like, damn, in the fifth grade, people didn't want really? me to hang out with them outside because they're like, do you even tan? Shit like that, you got know what I'm saying? That you might think are small, but they have a mm -hmm. lasting impact. So I don't even like that verbiage of using microaggressions because they have huge impacts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I agree. I yeah, this is even found in the sexualization of like, of young black girls, like vivid memories of like, creepy like this creepy like guy i think i guess he's like an uncle or whatever but he was like you should really sit with your legs crossed i'm like why are you looking up into how i'm sitting with my legs like when i'm like three four it's it's this over sexualization of like 
Black right? women from a young so, age as well. Um, that I think that especially going off of what Joy said, um, the idea of a lot of young Black girls having to change what they're wearing in order to accommodate um, male presence. And <laughs> it always rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, why? Why do I have to change? What's, what's wrong with what I'm wearing? I'm wearing what I wear in my house, comfortable clothes. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's that I, well, obviously I didn't have the words just as Lydia said at the time, but I knew it was wrong. I was like, this doesn't make sense. Why is it that like when my family's here, I'm fine in these clothes, but like when extended family comes, there's a problem. Or fr friends, you know, family friends come, there's a problem. But there's so many layers, so many um, things to unpack there. But um, I guess we can move on to the next question. So when it comes to Black Lives Matter, um, we hear a lot of talk around dismantling systemic racism. Do you guys think that actually dismantling systemic racism, racism is possible? And, um, or is there another way do you think that w w we have to like create our own type of institutions in order to avoid, get away from systemic racism? And like, if you do think it is possible to dismantle systemic racism, how do you think that could be achieved? I think that um, systemic racism has become the popular opinion. And so I think if we start to introduce conversations about um, resisting this, we can kind of invalidate the common and normalized, like the status quo opinion that um, sets the tone for like where systemic racism, ex racism exists. So I think we can just kind of like try to deter away from that in order to bring light to something else. However, I do feel that people will always have their biases and stuff from what they're taught like mm -hmm. in their households. And that's hard to stop. I just think that we can, we can start to like make our voice even louder than theirs, you know? Yeah, I think education is a big part of that as Lydia was saying. So if we are educating people and, you know, not necessarily us specifically, but I mean, people educating themselves, right? If they want to, then I think that it might be a good way to start. Mm -hmm. What about you, Lydia? I completely agree. I think education is the biggest part because I feel like now, and I think that we're seeing the different and the changes in education, right? So now we have access to social media, we have access mm -hmm. to the internet. And so I know that, the common argument for a lot of people is like everything is so hyper like politicized right now like everybody has an opinion like pc culture and there is some truth to that i understand that but people are politicized people are being radicalized because people have access to information right like i like i i i grew up a lot around kids where they're like i never knew this happened i didn't know this happened and it was so genuine it was like i oh i've never seen this before right and I think you have a mixed reaction to that because some people are like, how? Like, it's been here the whole time. And then some people, it's not 
it's not something that is known to them. So I think education is number one. I think it has to be and things early. I don't know about you guys, but um, I was in a class and we were asked to talk about like residential schools. And so I learned about I learned about education residential schools from formal education in the 10th grade. That's when I learned about it. That's when I like. Right. And that's to me is. Yeah. Did you really learn the truth or was it a gloss? I thought 10th grade for me, that seemed late because I met other students in university who were like, no, we were talking about that from sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. They learned. Those were I, who and then and then on the other side of it, there were other kids in my in the in in the lecture who was like, "What is a residential school? I don't know what it is." And we're in third year university. Yeah. So education, okay. people very, are introduced to things at very different points in their life, and that's the problem. Yeah, especially. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, you go ahead first. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, especially in terms of like, we are occupying indigenous land it doesn't make sense that students and uh, settlers students that aren't being taught about indigenous people and their practices and their way of life it it just really doesn't make sense and the the historical colonial nonsense (laughs) that that is still being perpetuated to this day it just doesn't make sense. And the fact that I like literally didn't learn about any type of other than programming, it doesn't, <laughs> I could go, go on a whole dance because it makes me so angry that I didn't learn until first year university. And that I was like 18, 19 years old. That's yeah. too late. <laughs> it's way too late. But go ahead, Uba. I was just going to say, to the point of, like, trying to dismantle systems, I feel like it's really difficult. And that's when people start to introduce, like, words like abolition or, like, we need to, like, just throw the whole system away because there is no type of building that or or restructuring it because the foundations are so set in stone. Like, it is very hard to unlearn some of these things or create new learnings, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, I think that also... Things like I feel like it's we should learn more about how racism works culturally as well and not just in the classrooms because depending on who's instructing that could also impact the quality of education that you're receiving, right? So when Lydia was speaking about that in the 10th grade, I also learned about residential schools in the 10th grade, but mine was a very Canadianized, whitewashed mm-hmm. version of that where it made it seem way less harsh than what it was. And I didn't appreciate that. And then it's later in life through knowing other indigenous indigenous people or doing my own research where I learned, oh, these are the real atrocities of residential schools, uh, whatever, introducing like diseases to certain communities and murdering them, like all these different layers that I did not know because I was not getting taught like the full disclosure. And that was only like a two week section of what I learned. You get what I'm saying? I feel like it's very dangerous to just rely on these systems when they've been proven to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, a lot of these systems, a lot of these institutions were like built on the back of colonialism and all the atrocities that come with colonialism. And I think it's really hard for us to kind of revamp like <laughs> colonialism. Like, like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, right. you can't, right? 
So I think um, in terms of like um, dismantling systemic racism, I think education is a large part of like what we should be doing to radicalize younger people just so they know like like they have the option to be radical or not like be, ha making that like informed decision like you know what this is really important to me or you know what maybe this is not as important to me that's up to them right but like making sure that they they are knowledgeable and have that information like as uber was saying like it was a very whitewashed um version of what history was that's not informed uninformed decision like you know Uba wasn't informed to the point where she could make that decision like you know what this is actually really important to me or or not because all the information wasn't there so i think right. making sure that everyone has that information to do what they want to do with it yeah i would i would go on to the next question that we have is that as university students, and I guess that's specifically at Ryerson, do you feel that you guys are adequately represented? Do you feel like the subject matter, the courses, <laughs> faculty, et cetera, student body is representative? And do I, I already feel you, the RTA space is super white, super whitewashed. There ain't no black people. The only black person that worked there they didn't pay him enough money and he dipped. Oh so, my God. Do you think there's adequate representation? Don't look what I said by Listen. <laughs> in your respective classes, your programs, oh my God. slash in the school, like what is your experience as Ryerson students? Let me know. We want to know. Absolutely not. Why am I still learning about Eric <laughs> Erickson? And why am I still learning about Eric Erickson and the Marxist theory? And like, why? Can we introduce so something else than like, men who were dead like ten, wait a thousand years ago like can we talk about something more current can we talk about you know something like rooted in black history black creative practice something like that mm -hmm. it shouldn't be like every Not opportunity everywhere. i get to do a project sorry no i was just saying come on audrey, audrey Lord. oh okay Oh, finish your thought, Shorty. Um, okay. Um, I was just saying, yeah, like, it shouldn't be like every um every chance I get to do a project, I have to use teach people about my experience. I should just be able to, you know, learn something different and execute it myself in a different way. It's 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 annoying to always have to kind of center things around like my race in terms of creative projects and stuff like that, because I feel like I'm not represented at all in my program and I that's something that's important to me I should be represented in my program and like still be able to you know work on other things right like exist yeah. I would say that's like also too like lecturers like have you had a single lecturer professor that was not white I have seldom a single professor that wasn't white in RTA yeah. Yeah. I had one, and he's the coolest person ever. It just show. It just oh, shows. Was that Christoph? Yes. Christoph Alexander. Yes. Yes. Christoph Alexander. <laughs> Listen. First of all, I just saw him one day. One day, I, I looked. I said, "Black prof, who the hell are you?" And he's in this new media, and I was like, "Wow, I can. I never had him as a prof." 
So sad. You never Z. had him? Oh my I never had him. Because I didn't do any of the like digital media. I was doing all like the media business film production. So everybody was white. And I had two women. Two women ever in life. Out of all my classes. Out of 40 classes I took. Two. Interesting. In no, arts, like- I, we have a... In arts, like in the arts, I don't know if anybody else, but like we have, I have, I, don't, I have a majority women profs, hey, white women, okay, but, but majority, but like for my, <laughs> my, my fourth year, my fourth year, I've majority, yeah, women. I can't, I don't, I haven't had a lot of uh, male profs actually, but I have had two black profs, but I had to actively seek them out. Like yeah. if anybody ever had Melanie Knight, she teaches bear sociology classes amazing i would take take her class if you can guys melanie knight a queen and then at another prof i he literally taught politics i hate i hate politics classes at ryerson but i'm like you know what he was ethiopian too i was like gotta support gotta be there (laughs) sure or was he somali was his name ahmed no his name was um a boss oh i'm gonna ruin his last name oh shit okay so he went oh different prof okay yeah they're there. You just gotta find them. Yeah, Michael knows what's up. He knows barely. Melanie. Barely. They barely there. Yeah, I think so. representation could go way up. All the way I up. think I've had two black, two black profs. I'm in my third year. One of the black profs was a French teacher. So hey. nursing <laughs> is a mess. No, I'm joking. It's not a mess. I just think that the representation can very much increase. I, I think that we deserve to, and especially because um, I just created a, guys, I just um, created, well, co- co-founded um, a Black Nursing Student Association. So, Congrats. Um, thank you. So um, one of the struggles that we've had is um, finding Black like nursing profs to help us with um <laughs> with organizing uh, uh like a it's just basically like skills um practice in the summer and we're having a hard time finding them mm. so <laughs> as you can see that there's definitely a gap there and um in terms of like just representation in general like a lot of our program is um a lot of filipinos a lot of black students but there isn't a lot of representation so that's weird to me because i feel like a lot of the healthcare workers or nurses that i feel like i see are like people of color but when it comes to like institutions you never see them the people at the top never it's never the people of color so as you can see the disparities unfortunately are affecting a lot of black and brown people yeah um let's go to our next question so uh i guess we could talk about uh social media and allyship so how do you guys think that social media has helped the Black Lives Matter movement or any type of like um, online grassroots initiatives related to Black people? 
I think that more visibility, right? You can't ignore these things, right? They're in our face. And now because of social media, also because of cell phones, we can record, right? right. It's, no, it's no longer just based on our word versus the word of an officer, right? Because we know that that mm -hmm. doesn't hold a lot of weight, right? We can provide evidence and demonstrate that this is happening. And if it's ignored by... The police, if it's been, it's if our if our concerns are ignored by the institution, we can go to social media and people will demand it to be seen, right? Because that's how things like that's how everything changes, right? Politicians and stuff, they're motivated by people. So if I can post this online and thousands and thousands of people can retweet it, can add it, can do all this, then that's the way we can get more visibility. That's outreach, and I think that's definitely, you know, one of the good things about social media. Mm -hmm that it has it is given this platform where every information will always be accessible now. Right. I totally yeah. agree. I think when it comes to like Sorry? I think when it comes to like genuine help, I'm not sure about that. Because mm -hmm. I always say now I can tell if I'm looking at someone's page for the first time, I can tell exactly when May twenty fifth was, when George Floyd died. And when the blackout Tuesday happened, I can tell because you have the black square there. And then ever since then it's a bunch of selfies and I'm like and it's just mm -hmm. a bunch of like other stuff. And it's it's like, yeah, you, you posted the square and now what? You know what I mean? Right. I think though it has definitely helped um to connect black folk to each mm -hmm. other and kind of help us like to empower each other and to right. just have a community online um, that is rooting for us mm -hmm. if we don't have that in our homes. Um, but I just think that it's not all, always genuine. Sometimes it's hard to yeah. see what's genuine. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. From what Lydia was speaking about when you see like images of, I guess, brutalization towards Black people, so there, I feel like as of recently, there's like an over flooding of all these violent images or videos about like police brutality and other uh, types of stuff, or like even just hate crimes. How do you think that we can create safer spaces online for black people? Because constantly seeing all these dehumanizing, traumatic things literally is so tiring, exhausting, and it further traumatizes us. You know what I mean? Like, how do you think we can better navigate these spaces and also push forward, I guess, that movement, like Black Lives Matter movement? I think that platforms need to take some responsibility yeah. in the sense that there needs to be more disclaimers. I think that sometimes, you know, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, they like they fail in that. Right. We need a lot more disclaimers because it is traumatizing. Right. And yeah. I, I know and I know a lot of people who. For like for George George Floyd, for example, may he rest in peace. A lot of people didn't want to see that video and were uncomfortable yeah. and didn't want to see that it's traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. And other people did, right? But some people, it's it's you had to, you yeah. have if you don't you had to shut off your timeline because there's no disclaimer, there's nothing to be like, oh wait, before, right? So I think that that responsibility needs to fall on these platforms that we need to have. It needs to be a lot more filtered. Yeah, I'd like to just add that at the end both of you guys or all everybody made really good points um i feel like it's very easy for us to also fall into this like rabbit hole of seeing all these kind of traumatizing images and we don't realize how bad that is until later on down the line when we're really drained when we're burnt out we're feeling like we're not sleeping as well etc cetera, etc cetera, which throughout time and throughout constantly seeing like these images over and over again oh, right sure. 
that's how Love I it. felt specifically right after, I guess what we were saying, like George Floyd about Arbery, like these constant images. Like there was a point where I literally had to log out and not go on social media because I literally felt so yeah. affected. Right. Genuinely. Right. So thank you guys so much for talking to us. I like to thank Joy and Lydia for coming with us. Um, so this is the second episode in our three-part series for the Black Experience podcast. Uh-huh. Um, you want to say goodbyes? Bye. Say like little closing. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having us. Thanks for yeah. having us. It was so awkward. Yeah. I was so yeah. close. <laughs> no. To this our listeners. Yeah, to your listeners, we hope that you learn about this topic more um, in regards to allyship as a Black student. Once again, I'm Uba. I'm Sin. Yes. And this was a Black Experience podcast brought to you by Ryerson Student Life and Campus Engagement. Ta-ta-ta. Oh,